Just off the start, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, your description of Refine. Obviously, we're, we're a customer, but, um, you know, what is Refine helping its customers do? And uh, I know that kind of spans across a, a few different fronts at this point. Yeah, and it's been something that I've spent uh, a majority of this year on, actually. And so as of next week, we'll actually be announcing and, and reimagining what Refine Labs does based on all the feedback that customers have given us and non-customers and the things that we've learned. So if you think about us as a business, we're uh, about three, a little over three years old now, but the first 18 months, we had less than 10 people. So a majority of the company's size has happened in the last 18 months. Um, and over time, as you get more customers and more understanding, you are able to iterate on what do customers actually want and how are we uniquely positioned in order to help them. Um, and so I'll, uh, I'll, let, I'll let some stuff out here that'll be announced next week. We position Refine Labs as a revenue R&D laboratory. We help companies do research and development for their revenue engine, just like companies innovate on their product. And the way that you think about that is that companies have a very defined process for how they execute product R&D. It's usually a five-stage process or whatever, as many stages. You start with an idea or a concept, and you end up with a commercialized product or feature, and they're able to do that in a predictable way, and they use this process in order to manage investments, in order to focus the priorities and the investments of the company, in order to take things that don't belong in the pipeline anymore and move them out. So they always have a view of what is our innovation for our product coming in the future, and companies invest about 25% of revenue SaaS companies invest in that. So if you're a $100 million business, you spend $25 million on product R&D on average. And then when you look at that on the revenue side, the idea is that from, I don't know, pre-2015, marketing and sales didn't change much. You went to events, you enabled the sales team, your sales team sold, and now all of a sudden so many things are changing quickly, just like technology accelerated and continues to accelerate things in the revenue system and how buyers are changing or accelerating and company our position is that companies need an R&D function for their revenue system. They need to have a pipeline of innovation. They need to be able to understand where those things sit. They need to be able to manage that in a way where they look and they see programs that aren't performing, that they're able to move them out of the mix and replace that with a program that does work. Um, and so those are, those are some of the things that we're working on here. Is that like 100% rolled out? No, that's a concept and a vision for where our company is going and, and what we're thinking. Um, and excited for you as a customer to uh, be a part of it. Yeah, that's, that, that's exciting to hear. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, you know this, I'm sure you've heard this from many of your clients too. It's especially for a company of a certain size, and in our case, you know, sub 100 employees, um, you know, you just can't afford to have all of the expertise and function kind of needed to do some of this stuff effectively, right? Once upon a time, we had someone internal who was who was zoning paid, but um, you know, for for a similar, frankly, sum of money uh, that it costed us to to have that person on board, you know, we can engage a, a kind of multi point team, uh, you know, in the, in your case and. Uh, with refined labs to bring expertise across creative and the platforms themselves and, you know, campaign management and these things that would cost us, you know, many multiples more to, to kind of do it ourselves. Um, one, one question for you, um, you know, you post a lot on social and as you know, that, that for us is, is really the core of our business is, 
uh, enabling everyone in a company, you know, to help to advocate for the things that they do. In some cases, that's, you know, more on an individual basis. I, I just had a conversation with one of our clients who runs a large employer branding recruiting program. So, you know, their users are primarily recruiters. Um, but uh, I, I, is, would it be fair to say that you went all in on LinkedIn and, uh, and kind of when and why did that happen for you? Yes, it would be fair to say that I went all in on LinkedIn and I went all in beginning on August 9th, 2019. I'll remember the day forever because it fundamentally changed my life. Um, and the, but the precursor to that is that before August 29th, 2019, I actually spent from 2012 to 2019 actually operating and executing. So I saw the opportunity on Facebook in 2012 and was running ads there to sell things. Uh, I did the exact same thing when B2B targeting existed on Facebook in 2015. I was using Facebook ads in order to target healthcare professionals and you could run account-based ads in 2015, 16, which was wild before Cambridge Analytica. I saw the exact same patterns inside of Instagram in the 2016 timeframe. Um, and there was a match here where it's like, okay, I actually, I saw these opportunities and didn't capitalize on them as much. I'm not going to have this happen to me again. And when I saw the opportunity, I spent the first six months of LinkedIn posting stuff with almost no results. I got a customer here and there, uh, people that were, my advisors told me, Hey, like this LinkedIn thing's never going to work. You might as well start hiring a sales team. Um, I would get seven to 20 uh, likes on posts every time I posted and I was doing it pretty inconsistently, maybe a couple times a week. Um, and then on August 9th, 2019, something happened. My post went viral. I got hundreds of thousands of views for the first time and was like, I'm pot committed to this channel. And then for almost every day since then, I've been posting content on LinkedIn. I have arguably the most prolific content creator on the platform in the past three years. Um, and so, and have been able to, through doing that, been able to scale a company to about 120 people and from one, from me to 120 people in less than three years with no cash infusion investment, things like that, have, uh, been able to acquire and hire talent. So some of the most incredible, most talented people that I know work here. And that's because of the awareness created through the LinkedIn execution for people that see the world the same way that we do and are looking for jobs in the same way in where we're marketing. So there's a good match on talent there. I've been able to acquire tons of customers in order to grow to that size. You have to be able to acquire a lot of customers and it basically set ourselves apart as a company as a category of one. Like, so I, uh, I have clearly like demonstrated the upside and the possibilities in doing this on LinkedIn and it's available on other platforms at the same time too. Um, so yeah, I did, I did go all in at this point. I do not remain all in actually. I don't think that LinkedIn is the same as it was in 2019. I still produce content there. I still a big priority for us. It still drives a lot of revenue and a lot of other things, but, uh, it is not the same platform that it was 18 months ago. And that's the, the curve of social platforms that a lot of people miss by the time they start creating content for it. The best part of the opportunity is over sometimes. Yeah. It's not to say that the opportunity is gone. It's just the best part of it is over. Yeah. So there's three things in there I want to talk about. So maybe just real quick, uh, if if LinkedIn has reached its zenith, you know where where are you devoting additional time? Where where do you see uh, opportunity going forward? I know you've talked about TikTok and some of your trend uh, analysis. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, so like our like our lineup here is LinkedIn podcast right now exclusive live events and TikTok. So those are like the four core things we have a we we have a we send emails. We don't send it the same way companies do, but we send email. We uh, we post content on YouTube. But if you really look at the core four, those are the the places where we're focused. So. Um, I think that having a, uh, a video podcast I, ideally recorded through live events, I think is a great strategy and every, co- every B2B company should be doing that. Um, we've been doing that for more than 24 months now. So I think that's an overall great strategy because it's platform agnostic, right? You film the podcast, you do the event, you record the content, and then you can actually adjust the content for whatever medium you want for your blog post, for a YouTube video, for LinkedIn or TikTok. Um, and so you, it allows you to capture the long form recording, which then allows you to create micro content underneath it. What, uh, what have you seen from TikTok in particular, especially in a, in a B2B context? So I've been experimenting and probably, probably one of the, uh, fastest moving in B2B. Honestly, I see some sales professionals there using it to like sell sales courses and things like that. But when you think about B2B marketing, there's not a ton of information out there. Um, and so I've been moving on it. I consider myself early from a, as a B2B standpoint, late as an overall standpoint, right? That platform is very mature. I don't know. Last time I checked, there was more than a billion downloads. It could be 1.5 billion now. It's been over six months since I checked, but there's tons of people on the platform. The algorithm and the user experience is significantly superior to any other platform at the moment, in my opinion. And so I think there's a lot of upside on TikTok now. I mentioned the timeline for uh, for LinkedIn. I started posting content on LinkedIn in February or March 2019. And I had the moment where I said LinkedIn is going to be the place where I'm going all in on August 9th, 2019, which is about a five to six month delay from when I started doing it to when I said, this is the opportunity. Um, and I'm currently at about month five on TikTok. Um, and so I haven't had that moment yet where it's like, this is it. I'm going to move all my chips there, but I, I'm still working. I know what I'm working toward. I know what phase I am in the development. I'm in the early phase. You got to do the reps. You got to experiment. You got to try new things. You got to be comfortable making posts that only get 200 views or three likes. A lot of people are insecure and can't go through that part of the process. Um, and then being able to weigh it out because then when LinkedIn, when people really started figuring out, hey, I should be on LinkedIn, which was probably post-pandemic, it's probably like mid-2020, right? When people are, when the common executive, 45-year-old executive decides now because they can't go into the office, they have to be digitally native, that they're going to start going using LinkedIn or a social platform like that. Then they move on it. And I got 50,000 followers and I produce content every day and I capitalize. Um, and so the I think the, the same trend will happen inside of TikTok, but we're early. Yeah, it's interesting. I talked with... Um... I haven't had too many conversations with our users around TikTok. I had a recent conversation with a, a B2B enterprise sales executive who had started to kind of toy around with it. And, um, but uh, yeah, I think it's still very much early days from, from a B2B standpoint. For most B2B companies, it's not a good idea to be there, right? So like the, I, I like explaining this part too, because I think it really starts to drive it in. If we weren't generating tens of millions of dollars a quarter in pipeline from LinkedIn and a podcast. If we didn't have people that want to come to our live events every single week, if we didn't post three podcasts a week, then I wouldn't be doing TikTok, right? So like 
for us, because of the maturity of our marketing model, TikTok becomes a logical decision. But for many B2B companies, their marketing model is nowhere near as mature. They run SEO and Google search and, and lead gen. They're trying to get a couple things started. And if you're in that position, you're trying to get a couple things started. TikTok is not the best place to start. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, it, you you touched on one thing that I, I think is at the core for uh, for many of our customers and users and, and companies that, you know, aren't an everyone social customer that are thinking about, you know, not only how can they enable their people to be active on social, but should they even do it, which is, you know, where do you start? There's still a lot of people out there in the professional world who uh, maybe they're on social. Uh, a lot of them are, of course, at this point, you know, they've established their profile on LinkedIn. Um, but just getting going, right? And kind of getting past that psychological hurdle of like, what should I be doing? How should I be doing it? You know, when you think about what you've learned since, you know, 2019, or even before that, well, how do you kind of distill that down into kind of the simplest form of like, if you had to give someone kind of three bullets, their objective isn't necessarily to reach, you know, the heights that you have from an audience and engagement standpoint, but just for them to start to see some dividends and value from social, what, what are, what are, you know, two, three things that you think really do start to, uh, you know, get, get a person to a place of actually receiving some benefit and value from being on social. So I think that the, the, the first place to start, and I'm trying to figure out how to frame this because it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit hard conceptual to explain, but I've been doing social media marketing to sell stuff since 2012, right? So if you are listening to this and you haven't been doing that, there are a lot of patterns and dynamics and understanding that you're going to need to learn. It's not to say that you shouldn't do it. It's just to say that there's a lot of dynamics and there's actually a lot of learning. It's just like becoming a professional football player. You play football since you're five years old and then you go to the NFL usually, right? And it's hard to be 24 years old and decide you want to be an NFL player and be able to do it. It doesn't mean that you can, it just means that there's a little bit of a difference. So um, there's there's being able to understand social generally, which is honestly nothing more than being a human that in doing the things that you would in real life digitally. So I think people try and put on a pedestal digital and think they need to pretend to be someone that they're not or be something different as opposed to just being themselves. Um, I think the next thing is intent. I think most people go into social with the intent to either prop themselves up in a selfish way or to sell stuff. Um, and both those, your buyers or your potential followers are going to be able to sniff that out from a mile away and realize this person isn't in it to help me. They're in it for them. And I can feel it based on the things that they say and how they behave. And so by having the right intent, and I just like, I think the, the best way to frame it up in terms of your intent is that you're trying to be the best consultant out there for whatever you do, trying to get, do free, give out free consulting at scale. If you, if you sell everyone social and you're a CSM, like you should be out there trying to figure out how to get everyone to be better at social for free and advocating for it. Uh, so that's just sort of like one example. CSM is a good one because they're, they're sort of in there. Um, and then there's like this whole element that I think almost every company misses, which is the idea that that LinkedIn right now for most companies, and if you take LinkedIn in a podcast, video content on LinkedIn with a podcast should be every company's number one priority in their entire business. And most companies say, 
okay, we got uh, LinkedIn, and then it gets slotted underneath the 13 programs that they're already running that have been running in perpetuity because they're just like, that's how what we did last year. Let's just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And you never actually capitalize on the opportunity because you, pu- you put it at priority level 13, not priority level one. And so it requires a level of focus and a level of saying, hey, we're, maybe we're going to stop doing this stuff or maybe we're going to deprioritize this stuff. Just like I talked through, right? We have our, when, we, when I started, it was only LinkedIn, nothing else. And then nine months later, we added a podcast and live events, which actually allowed us to innovate on LinkedIn. And then about 12 months later, we added TikTok. So right now we have a like greater than $20 million recurring revenue business. And we have four core channels that we, that we run on. And I'm not, maybe it's just one, it's actually just one program that gets distributed on a couple of different distribution channels. Yep. Um, and so that's, uh, I think there's a level of focus and prioritization that companies don't give it to. And then if you're going to go to the gym once a month, then why even go? <laughs> consistency. Gonna do, if you're, you're going to yeah, post on LinkedIn yeah. once a month and just, cons- yeah, consistency, which gets, which gets driven through focus and prioritization. So most executives don't feel like this is their number one priority and it shows. Um, and, and so, and the last thing to get it to, to work, I say this every time, like if you're a company and you, and your C-level executive team isn't doing it, how can you expect anyone at your company to, you're basically demonstrating that you don't think it's important enough. So why should anyone else do it? Um, and so I think it's at the point now where if you, if you want this to happen at your company as a CEO or a whatever executive CRO, whatever executive you are, it's about time to step up and do it yourself. Yeah. There's no question about that. Uh, we, uh, we've been fortunate enough to work with enough companies over the years, varying degrees of executive support. One that stands out in my mind uh, has been T-Mobile. We started working with T-Mobile when John Ledger was CEO for uh, his, his last two years. If you're familiar with John, uh, he had a mullet and you know a few million subscribers on Twitter and Instagram, and he had his slow cooker, uh, Sunday slow cooker show. And, uh, it just gave everyone at that. I don't, I don't think on occasion, John, I think made a point to kind of explicitly call out the value of social and the desire to have everyone at T-Mobile doing that. But more than anything, just seeing him do that stuff gave everyone in that company permission to just go, you know, from retail store employees to customer care center workers. And it's been a, it's been a really fun, uh, company to work with in that regard, just to see how much, you know, executive leadership support, uh, can really affect, you know, initiative and, 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 and adoption across the company. Um, you said 90, 97% of revenue came from dark social. I just saw in a recent post from you, I, I think, uh, how do you think about dark social? Uh, what is that, what does that statement kind of mean? Maybe if you can unpack it a bit. Yeah. So dark social, just to get everyone up to speed is defined as through the scale and maturity of the internet, it's created tons of different word of mouth channels where buyers can engage with their peers, validate decisions, understand what other people are doing that drive purchasing decisions that don't get tracked by attribution software and don't create intent data, which creates a very broad definition of places that B2B buyers are going what they use today as primary ways to make purchasing decisions that they never did even three years ago. If you think about a B2B executive pre COVID mm-hmm. that, um, was do whatever they were doing, they definitely weren't going to a, uh, you know, LinkedIn group community event once a week. They weren't logging into LinkedIn every day. They weren't going into some community and asking what people were doing that all of them do now. 
there's just so many new ways that have opened up about how buyer, buyers have always wanted to do this because they trust their peers the most. And what they've done over the past three years is learn how to access their peers and be able to use them to make decisions. And so that's the whole effect, right? So now instead of buyers going to Google or talking to your sales rep or doing stuff like that, they go into these places and they discuss with their peers that they trust more. Um, and so those places could include social networks like LinkedIn or TikTok have significant privacy policies that are not going to be able for you to attribute a touch point or a piece of content or different things like that. Content platforms like Apple or Spotify that use podcasts, uh, release podcasts and things like that, that have very poor analytics and definitely no attribution tracking there. Um, because, because of the privacy policies, just let me put this in place. The reason that these things have this in place is because they have privacy policies that protect their users. Um, it would also include like direct text messages. So sending a text message to zoom, other types of direct communication, um, third party events. So like me going and doing a live event and shouting out everyone's social. And then everyone in, so everyone in the place has that touch point of me giving it some credibility. And then uh, there's no, everyone's social is not able to track that. I just say that at some random event, but it, it could be re relatively impactful, especially if it goes on my podcast afterwards and a bunch of people hear it. Yep. So anyway, there's tons of different ways that this information is getting out in ways that aren't being tracked. And because companies can't traffic, track it, they just pretend like it's not happening. And they just, they just go back to their old outdated attribution models and think this is how buyers buy. And if you just went out and asked 10 of your customers, you would realize that everything that you're measuring is inaccurate and incomplete. And that there's this whole other element of how buyers make decisions that you're not measuring today. Well, let's talk about that for a second, just to kind of riff on that. Yeah. So I, I think um, marketing has been, this, this is kind of our theory and, and, and view of it. And you know I think we definitely uh, subscribe to the same perspective around measurability and dark social, especially as it relates to B2B, right? B2B transactions, I think you, I think you posted on this before. D to C or, you know, direct to consumer is not anything that I'm familiar with, uh, you know, beyond just kind of cursory knowledge of friends who've been in, you know, various businesses in that, in that realm. But B2B is what we know. It's what most of our clients are engaged in. I know that's, you know, primarily for you at Refine Labs as well. There are, uh, you know, deals take longer. There's more people involved. Even when you get to a deal being completed, there were people that participated in that decision who you may not even come to be aware are a part of it until like a year or two down the road. You know, it's just, it's so complex. There are people that are known, unknown, all sorts of variables involved, but marketing just seems very disconnected from, uh, from that reality. And, and then you bring into the equation, you brought up privacy policies, right? Well, we've got GDPR, we have CCPA, right? I mean, that's, very much affecting how marketing does a one-to-many motion with things like email or or other direct practices we had the pandemic which completely eliminated you know in-person events which i think are are you know a pretty dubious expenditure to begin with then we've got ads which you know are a big focus for you and uh i think is shown by some of your own data uh, at least what we've seen on our end is costs go up and effectiveness goes down so like what how how do how do marketers make good with this, right? I mean, to your point, they seem to be going back to the tools that they've used for the last fifty plus years and approaching it, you know, just over and over again from that position. But everything has changed significantly, and it seems to be just changing even further, right? We're not moving away from from these trends. 
Yeah, I mean, if you think about how B2B companies operate their revenue machine, it's the exact same thing that they did in 2011. It's, the, it's basically the same thing, whether you're doing ABM or your MQL or different things like that. You got new technology, you got new metrics, all to automate things that you've been doing for more than 10 years. And so, so many things have changed, how buyers buy, how companies can sell the overall like growth and adoption of product-led growth strategies. Um, so many different things have changed in the, in the market, but we still measure and execute marketing and sales in a relatively similar way to how we always have. Um, and so the first step in my view, it, from a marketing standpoint is you got to change the goal. Like, so, and you got to change how you actually measure that goal. So what we've done just to get back to your 97% topic is the way that we measure the effectiveness of our uh, we call it creating demand, not marketing, but mm. measure the effectiveness of creating demand is how many buyers come to our website every month and say, Hey, I want to talk to your sales team and then convert into pipeline and revenue. And it becomes very, very easy. It actually is a adapted B2C mindset, B2C. Like you have no sales team. Your goal of marketing is to get someone to go to the website and check out and buy. And so when you have a sales team, should the goal of marketing be the same to get someone to basically check out and buy, but they can't actually put their credit card in and execute that transaction in an enterprise model. They have to go through a salesperson, but it's the exact same motion that a buyer would do B2C. So we op you optimize for that. And then when they convert, right? And if you go out and you do marketing and you create demand and more buyers aren't going to your website and saying, Hey, I want to buy now, then your shit isn't working. Right? So how do you get more buyers to come here and say, Hey, I want to buy now. And then on the, on that form, or chatbot or, you know, people are like, forms suck. Let's use a chatbot instead. And it's like a chatbot is just a more complex, more annoying form. So in your form, have a, have a field about how'd you hear about us? We implemented this more than 12 months ago. We have almost a thousand records of data here. Um, and we implemented on more than 20, 30 companies as well. And so we're getting data on that side as well. And 97% of our closed one deals, not leads, closed one deals come from what the buyer says when they check out, they either say social media, podcast, word of mouth, or community. They say one of those four things in 97% of our revenue gets attributed to those core things. And there's one, I think one or two deals that got attributed somewhere else. And it's reflective of our, of our marketing strategy. It's like how, how we market and that's what we get. And if you go to a company that doesn't create demand and you put that on their site, you're going to get Google online research, spam, stuff like that in your, in your system, because you aren't creating demand. Um, and so we use self-reported attribution to measure things that other companies tend to say are immeasurable, right? Uh, how are we going to measure our podcast? Um, and it's like, oh, wait, if we just ask our buyers when they want to buy, how they heard about us and our podcast was actually working, they would say podcast. Um, and so it's a, uh, I know it's a mind blowing concept to ask your, instead of using software to measure stuff, to ask your customers what they think. Um, and that has been a strategy that I've used my entire career and finally formalized it. And I wish I had this measurement, uh, idea in the bag in 2018, it would have made my job a lot easier. It would have made me be a much better marketer had I figured that out earlier, but now it's here and tons of companies are adopting it. And for $0 and five minutes of effort, getting the highest ROI on anything that you could do in marketing by sourcing tons of insights from customers that want to buy. Um, so I think that is a, 
there's a whole, I, I know we don't have time on this podcast to go through the whole thing about it, but like you got to change your mindset about what you're trying to do. You have to change your metrics, both the top level metrics and how you think about attribution and optimizing strategies. And then you can think about what programs are we going to run and companies just try to skip steps one and two. We're not going to change our mindset and we're not going to change our metrics. And then we're just going to sprinkle some LinkedIn on here and hope that it works. And that's, uh, that's typically where you run into an issue. If you actually want to adopt this and be successful on it, you have to do it in that order, met mindset, metrics, execution. Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. And uh, yeah, I mean, ask them at the cash register, right? Um, and mm -hmm. it, it's particularly acute for, and I imagine, you know, we're not the only one amongst your customers that kind of face this challenge. But, you know, for, for a long time, we, I would say we weren't in the business of creating demand, right? We were really in the business of trying to capture buyers who were already in the market. And uh, I had a conversation with the CMO of one of our clients, a company that was acquired by Adobe, and they'd been a, a great customer for a number of years. I didn't even know he was the executive sponsor until after they'd been acquired. You know, it was another one of those kind of situations. And I was telling him about our marketing and kind of, you know, why is it that it's this very small percentage of the market, you know, that uh, seems to be kind of buying at any given time? Why aren't there companies like T-Mobile that have arrived at the same conclusion or, you know, any one of our other clients? And mm -hmm. and his statement was was relatively simple, but just stood, stood out in my mind. This was a couple of years ago, which is, you know, you guys just need to be out there uh, conveying the vision of, you know, what you're trying to bring. And I think said differently, it's, you know, it's creating demand. Mm -hmm. um, totally. And there, there's so many companies, right, in the world now, especially with technology, and this is only going to accelerate where it's not just a riff on, you know, it's not a better version of the wheel, right? Like it's a company bringing something new to market that doesn't necessarily have a uh, budget at a buyer already allocated, or this isn't something that they've necessarily bought before, and which makes it so much more critical to be investing in demand. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like we could probably talk about marketers and their, you know, need to kind of, I don't know, uh, risk averse attitudes towards, you know, changing some of these things, but, mm -hmm. um, Maybe just to kind of, uh, I've got two questions if we have time. Um, yeah. One is just on the talk of, topic of ads and then maybe a, for a final question, kind of looking forward, but just on the topic of ads, it's core to your guys' business. You know, it's what you help us and, and many of your clients with. What, how should B2B businesses think about ads? How should they think about using them effectively? It's obviously very easy to spend a ton of money and you know, produce little to nothing in return how should we think about ads in this, in this, you know, overall kind of mindset of demand gen? Yeah, totally. And then just for the record, we're like, we're transforming into a holistic view. So like organic social, organic programs, events, yes. we're not necessarily helping with all those programs, but we're helping customers prioritize and figure out what's working and what's not and what to prioritize. So, um, when you think in more detail on the ad strategy, ads become a huge component for, a lot of B2B SaaS companies that just raise money or have raised money in the past and have to hit goals and do not have a proven organic strategy. It's not complicated, you know what I mean? And so they can either hope, they can either spend nine months and hope that their organic strategy works, or they can try and build both in parallel as a hedge, having multiple things running because a lot of companies will be go in and say, 
we're gonna we're gonna unlock demand gen this year and then they go in with some agency that's doing seo and blog content and they end up a year later with no no added benefit and they just wasted a bunch of time and time matters for these companies time is actually the number one killer because they burn right so just by being able to make your marketing have a higher roi could completely change the trajectory of the business because of the burn rate um and so when i think about uh ads the first segment is in my capture demand or creating demand um so search review sites if you use lead aggregators like those are all play like basically anything that's paper lead um google ends up being a pay like more or less a paper lead as well so anything that that where you're spending money is i want buyers that want to buy our stuff and i'm trying to convert them into a conversation with our sales team um, most companies spend 100% of their budget on that because of the way that they measure and report on, and the way that they have the mindset of what marketing should do. Uh, and then what most companies should be doing where they're not spending money is how are we creating demand? Where are we going out with buyers that do not have intent to buy our stuff? This isn't a retargeting campaign. Buyers that do not have demonstrated intent to buy our stuff and move them over time into a buying cycle. Um, and this is where, uh, specifically social media amplification can be really helpful. Um, and then you can take stuff from Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok, whatever one that you want. You don't need to run them all at once. I recommend trying to figure out one or two and make them actually work instead of just spraying money in a bunch of different places and hoping something sticks and use that for two core things. One, to position your business, to evangelize your category and position your business as the category leader through always on execution by being able to distribute content that does that to your target accounts. That's one thing. And then be able to amplify content that you create, whether that's video content, case studies, uh, webinar invites, uh, you know, dare I say blog content or long, long form written content, imagery, graphics, any type of content that you can use to amplify to your target accounts. That content could be content that you've posted organically that you already know works. So that's what we do. You don't have to do it that way, but basically we take my posts that perform the best and then we run them to our top thousand accounts. We already know that people like it. We already know because a thousand people liked it on LinkedIn and it got more than 150,000 views. Now we're just going to take that and focus it very narrowly on the exact target customers that we're going after because most of them probably didn't see the organic post if we're being honest. Um, and so that's sort of how I think about ads generally is the goal is to get in, get in front of your target accounts with your message in a way that's effective and, and changes perception. When it comes down to it, what you're using media or content for is to change perception. You're trying to get someone that thinks they believe these things and over time getting them to believe something new. Um, so that's, uh, that's sort of how I think about uh, media generally. And then the way that you can fit, you mentioned this rising costs and things like that. There's a real, like there's something really to be said about what I mentioned at the beginning about running it like, like a revenue R and D product R and D, you got an idea for a concept. You're not dumping a million dollars into that product when it's in phase one of your development process, you're trying to figure stuff out and then you increase investment as it deems necessary from a business mm -hmm. case reason, from risk mitigation, all these different things. When it maybe gets to phase three or phase four, you're ready to hire people. You're ready to dump stuff in. Why in marketing do we just say, okay, it's a hundred thousand dollars on Google boof and blow it with no proof of concept or no like real sense about whether or not it's working. 
And so companies should, maybe you should run an experiment and you should put it in phase one and you should prove that you can get 10 buyers that want to buy before you actually invest more. And then you go to the next phase and you sort of work up and we're actually working on standardized definitions. So companies could align with, uh, with the definitions of each phase and the recommended spend levels per phase. But the, the reason that companies waste a lot of money in ads is because they don't have a R and D process. They just think everything is in stage five or they're about to launch it and they just dump a lot of money on unproven programs. Well, psychologically, that's where you want to be, right? That's, that's where you'd like to be from the start. And it's very easy. That's where to, you'd hope to be. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just like, I love comparing this to the R and D because products that customers want just don't pop out of nowhere. There's a lot of work that goes into getting them from phase one to phase five and uh, it's so undervalued on the revenue side, what it takes for me to get LinkedIn to actually work the way that it works for my business, how much effort and time and sweat and resources and investment and focus to get a program like LinkedIn to do what it's done for my business. And companies think you just, Oh, let's just hire some agency and like flip a switch and then boom, everything's going to work. And there's just no level of common sense about what it takes to make a program work. And so I, I'm hoping that the comparison to product R and D is going to get people to realize that it's just as hard for you to build, to rebuild your platform for SaaS as to make LinkedIn work for your business. It's just as difficult. Um, and hopefully companies will start to align investments and in thinking around this process as well. I really like it. Um, no, I mean, I think it, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, um, I know it's not your area of focus, but uh, it's the same thing in the recruiting world right now. You know, I, uh, the individual I was just talking with is uh, runs all of uh, employer branding and uh, recruitment marketing for one of the things, and uh, um, she's been in that role at three or four other companies in the past. And most recruiting organizations think about it, recruiting functions as basically sales without marketing, right? I think the common refrain she said is, well, you know, most people seem to think that recruiters are just going to pick up the phone and talk to a candidate. And, you know, that's all we really need. And, you know, meanwhile, I've, I was having a conversation with one of our recruiters at another client. He said, this is a well-known company, unicorn tech industry, like very successful B2B SaaS company, Coupa Software. Um, uh, IPO, you know, still successful, the, the bottom didn't fall out. And, uh, uh, he says, you know, I spend 80% of my time when I talk to new candidates telling them about what, who we are, right? Like what is Coupa? Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, you know, just because there's not a lot of conditioning at the top end of the funnel, it's just like, you know, your first interaction is some recruiter trying to get you on the phone. But I offer that as a, as a, as a, as a corollary to what you're doing. Same thing. Totally, yeah. you know, funnel and kind of funnel and process discipline, um, you know, as, as a company, to your point, uh, we follow that, that, that mode marketing for us is probably not our second largest expenditure, but, uh, the product engineering is, and it always has been, and it probably always will be. And, mm -hmm. uh, so, um, anyways, it's, that's exciting to hear where you guys are going with that. Thanks. We got one more. Yeah, where are we going? Uh, I mean, I know where you're going now. So, uh, you know, as far as uh, uh, and, and maybe more specifically, just kind of knowing knowing what I know about where where you're taking refine going forward. Um, uh, who do you think you're going to be working with? Like, where where do you see where 
where where are you finding the people who are really willing to subscribe to you know your philosophy and vision around you know what needs to be done on the revenue side yeah i um i think that our target customer base is going to stay the same i think that what we've built is just a uh a exactly what our target customer want our ideal customer wants um, and so I don't see our target customer changing all that much. I do see it opening up enterprise opportunities. Enterprise companies have struggled to work with us before because there's so much organizational change required at that size that, and they're so matrixed out that they can never make it happen. Now you can basically say, okay, we're going to open up our R and D function. We're going to set it up over here. And then refine labs is going to prove out programs and then bring them to us and then train our team on how to run these ourselves. That would be great. So I actually think it will expand uh, total addressable market. Um, but our, like our core customer ends up being a high growth, high growth B2B SaaS company, typically pre IPO. Um, and so that's, I think that will remain our core customer base because there's so much at stake. There's been a lot of investment running in these companies. Typically, you know, one company takes a majority of the market share and a majority of the economics overall. Um, and we think that we give our customers the best shot of, of winning that battle. Cool. Well, thanks for your time, Chris. I, uh, uh, it was nice to connect. And um, yeah, I appreciate you making it sound like you got a busy, busy day or two ahead. But uh, yeah, we've enjoyed working with the team. And um, yeah, look forward to uh, chatting again in the in the not too distant future. I'll let you know maybe next time I'm in I'm in Austin. It'd be great to connect in person. Yeah, please do. Yeah, it'd be it'd be great to meet up in Austin. Thanks for having me. Cool. Thanks, Chris. Great to meet you. Likewise. See ya. Talk soon. See ya. Good to meet you. Bye. Hey everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. And I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you, really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode.